This morning, in addition to uh, being delighted with our cadets and uh, hearing about the program, we're also continuing in our worship series, uh, Worthy of Worship, looking at different aspects of our habits and practices of worship and how they form and shape us to be more and more like Jesus Christ and form and shape us as a community of faith. Pastor Laura has taken us through Joshua, looking at worship as covenant renewal. We've attended to the Psalms, looking at what does it actually mean to praise and how our songs form and shape us. And today, this morning, we're turning to the prophet Micah for help in understanding confession of sin. Why and what, and what exactly it is we're doing and what we're not doing. So before we turn to the words of Micah in chapter 6, we are going to pray for the Spirit to be with us as we open God's Word. People of God, please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and settle in amongst us as we open the Word of God as we attend to the words of Micah, as we attend to your voice. Help us hear, help us listen, and help us see Jesus. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So Micah 6. And this might have you um, wondering, huh, Micah 6.8 is familiar, not to our cadets program, but to our gems. Uh, Micah 6.8 might, in fact, be the only verse you can possibly think of when you hear Micah. Wait, what? What I don't know. All I know is it's about something doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. Micah said that somewhere. We're going to hear that in context this morning. And it might take us a little while before we get to the more well-known part of this chapter that we know so well. So Micah 6, starting at verse 1, not 8, but reading through verse 8. So listen then for the voice of God. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. The Lord is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted. What Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, home mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God doesn't call prophets when things are going well, okay? God calls prophets to speak to God's people when things are going south, when the covenant relationship between God and God's people is rocky, to say the least, when it's in trouble. Micah is a prophet around the same time as his more well-known prophetic colleague, Isaiah, and around the same time as Hosea, who is also a minor prophet like Micah, has his own book in scripture. So there's three prophets called by God to his people, to different audiences, but around the same time. That's three prophets called. Things are not going well for God's people at this moment in their history. Each prophet is commissioned to call God's people back to the covenant promises they've made. Back to living according to God's will for them. And each prophet has a bit of a different approach. We're we're a bit more familiar with Isaiah. We spent way more time with Isaiah than we have with Hosea or Micah. And Isaiah, we know, kind of goes big. Isaiah goes cosmic. Isaiah goes for the dramatic, okay? He's got visions of many-eyed seraphim and burning coals and light blazing in the darkness and there's lions and lambs and children and vipers hanging out together. And if we had to choose a genre for Isaiah, I think Isaiah would be a bit more of the sci-fi prophet. There's a whole lot of weird cosmic stuff going on in his stuff, okay? Makes for some really interesting reading. Hosea, on the other hand, goes personal and intimate. If you have read Hosea or know his story, you know that when God calls Hosea as a prophet, he calls him to marry a woman named Gomer. And Gomer is a well-known sex worker in their village who will break Hosea's heart again and again with every act of her unfaithfulness. And God does that to to highlight to God's people what they're doing to him, that they are the unfaithful partner in that marriage, that God is the faithful one to them. I think if Hosea had a genre, I think he'd be one of those prestige dramas where no one is happy and no one smiles ever. Just a very brutal kind of story. And then there's Micah. Micah, of whom we really only know 
Chapter six, verse eight, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. But Micah finds himself in the middle of a courtroom drama. When the word of the Lord comes to Micah at the beginning in chapter one, it's the voice of a witness ready to testify against God's covenant people. Hear you peoples, all of you. Listen, earth, and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Micah is a a prosecuting attorney on God's behalf in his role as prophet. He's, He's called to build an airtight case against them. And they actually kind of make his job a little too easy. And Micah focuses his case on the leaders of God's people, the priests, the prophets, the so-called prophets, the judges, the officials. And just a cursory look through the earlier chapters of Micah, the litany of sins are steep and they're undeniable. Both Micah and God describe the leaders of God's people as coveting fields that do not belong to them and then seizing them. They defraud people of their homes and they rob them of their inheritance. And one of the most brutal, brutal descriptions of the oppression that the leaders are doing on the rest of God's people is where God just says this about them. They tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. They eat my people's flesh and they strip off their skin. And they break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in the pan. God says, you rulers of Israel, you despise justice and distort all that is right. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. They should embrace justice, but instead they hate the good and love evil. The picture that emerges, the case that Micah builds, is that the leaders of God's people making themselves rich on the backs of the poor and the vulnerable. They take advantage of those that they should protect and serve. And the worst of it is that as the leaders and priests and prophets of God's people are doing all of this, they actually think they're still doing the Lord's work. Micah says, yet they look for the Lord's support and they say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. And they go through the motions of worship and praise and sacrifice as if it does not matter how they live the rest of the time. So long as they tithe enough and get to temple regularly and make the right sacrifices. As if they can worship a God of justice and then act so unjustly in the rest of their lives. 
chapter 6, our somewhat hard passage this morning, even around a well-known beloved verse, this is, this is the, the big scene in the courtroom drama. That moment where you know nothing is going to be the same after this witness takes a stand, after this prosecuting attorney does their work. This is where the whole drama has been going, to, going towards. Micah calls on the mountains and the very foundations of the earth to bear witness, to serve as a jury in this case of the Lord's accusation against his people. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. Micah, the prosecuting attorney, calls his star witness. And God takes a stand against his people. Bearing witness to how God has kept his side of the covenant. How God has kept his promises. How God has protected them, blessed them, saved them over and over again God has not broken covenant, but they have. And the tension's high, and the courtroom is deadly silent after a witness like that. And then the obviously guilty defendant takes the witness stand for what is going to be a brutal cross-examination by Micah, the prosecuting attorney, as he paces in front of the jury box making his case. And at first it appears that in response to God's testimony, that the leaders are truly contrite, right? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Well, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? And it sounds like they want to make this right, right? To confess their sin, to seek forgiveness. But then they continue. And how did this sound to your ear when we, when we read it just a little bit in the scripture passage? Imagine the tone. What is the tone you hear? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The Psalms tell us that a humble and contrite spirit God will not despise. I am not sure if that sounds humble or contrite. In fact, I think if we let it, if we kind of get away from all of Scripture having to sound very pious, does that sound kind of sarcastic? Can that sound a little snarky? The people aren't confessing. They're looking for a way out, and they're going on the attack. Sure, we may be guilty, okay? Uh-huh. 
but God is simply too hard to please. Not even a thousand rams, not even 10,000 rivers of olive oil can satisfy him. What are we supposed to do? And even though they know God hates child sacrifice, they wonder aloud in God's presence, maybe that's actually what God wants from them. Maybe that will be enough. The people refuse and resist confessing their sin. Refuse and resist mending their relationship with God. How arrogant! How disobedient! How could they? How easily do we confess our own sins? How quick are we to be honest, truly honest with ourselves and with God when we fall short of the God we worship? We practice confession here. We just did earlier in this service. We focused on the Ten Commandments and and what God asks of us in that and said how poorly we do in living into those commandments. And we raised up our plea for the Lord to have mercy. In an age of the church where confession of sin especially is often dropped completely from the life of a worshiping community, it matters that we retain it here. It matters that we still practice it here. It matters that we conclude, that we include confession of sin in our worshiping life here at Community CRC. In fact, there's even rumblings here that maybe we don't practice it as often as we should. And for some, that is evidence that maybe we're going a little soft on sin. And I'll be honest with you, in my experience, and in my own self, (laughs) when we want more confession of sin, it's usually because we want other people's sin confessed and named. Not really our own. And we can be horrified so easily that God's people here in Micah 6 propose child sacrifice to appease an angry God. But we toss people on the altar of sacrifice as a way to deflect attention from our sin all the time. It is a very human impulse, and we are very good at it. I've sinned, and I have sins, yes, but my goodness, look at them! God, like, I mean, small here, big there. And we point our fingers at whatever we think is bigger than our own sin to make ours look smaller in comparison. God's people do it here in Micah. 
Oh, and dear people, we do it all the time too. It is a deeply human move to do. And while we may not come across as snarky or sarcastic as God's people here in Micah 6, I think our resistance to confession can still come from the same place. That same deeply rooted fear that maybe our God is just too hard to please. That we'll actually never be able to mend this relationship. And so we had better litigate every single sin. We had better deflect and justify and finger point and blame and excuse and deny all in order to protect ourselves from any of that guilt sticking. Because the temptation, I think, whether it's God's people in the time of Micah or us now, is to reduce our confession of sin and God's forgiveness into a transactional arrangement. That's what the leaders of Israel were trying to do, right? Okay, how much is it gonna cost us, God? How much is it gonna cost? Is it going to be 10,000 rams? Is it gonna be 10,000 rivers of oil? Could it be my own child? What is enough for you? How much do you want in return for your forgiveness? But God never looks at our covenantal relationship in that way. It is never transactional to our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. It is always relational. It is always grounded in love and never in payment. We know that Micah had a thick file of evidence against God's people. The first five chapters are building that case. The prophet did his job well. The case is airtight, it's well documented. But when the sovereign Lord takes the witness stand and testifies, God speaks words of longing and belonging to his people. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And then God uses shorthand to remind his people of key moments in their life together. It's like when friends only need to speak one word or refer to one instance and then both friends know exactly what they're talking about and no one else knows what is going on. God says, remember how I brought you up out of Egypt? Do you remember how I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam? Remember how I blessed you when Balaam was only going to curse you? Remember your journey across the Jordan 
remember our story? Do you remember our story? Instead of bluster and anger, God reminds his people of who they are, who he is, and who they have been together. He reminds them of their covenant with him by reminding them of their story together, of their relationship, of all that they have been through and promised each other. And as that courtroom remains deadly silent and still, as the very mountains and foundations of the earth sit in the jury box ready to render their judgment, the prophet cuts to the heart of the matter. He has shown you, oh mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require of you? Not rivers of oil or mountains of dead sacrifices and carcasses. It's not payment or bribery. It's friendship. It's relationship. Throughout scripture, walking with God is shorthand for friendship with God, for living in right relationship with God. Not following behind like a slave or a servant, but walking with God as a friend or a partner. And here Micah reminds God's people, God's people then and us now, that the only thing required of us is to live our lives at the intersection of justice and mercy. As God has shown us over and over and over again. And part of that is to be honest with ourselves and with God. But when we don't do that intersection of justice and mercy so well, and it's a hard tension to hold. We like to veer one way or the other. To hold them together, that is humble, hard work. And we are honest with ourselves and with God because that is what friends do. That's what relationships are built on. That's what allows relationships to grow. In worship, we are called to confess our sins. Not to grovel, not to point fingers at others or accuse others to save ourselves, not to deflect or deny, not to pacify or bribe God into forgiveness. We confess our sins with honesty and trust and humility because we remember our story. 
we remember the gospel story of who God is and who he is for us. Because we remember and believe the lengths that God will go to to keep his side of our relationship. And because we remember and are shaped by the cross of Christ, where God showed us, mortals that we are, the costly intersection of justice and mercy, so that we might be called friends of God. And we confess our sins because we each need to hear those precious words of forgiveness that come to us. Not because what we have done, but because of what he has done. Those precious words of grace and mercy and loving kindness that remind us that we will in fact not be able to mend what is broken but that God can mend far more than we know. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if when we confessed our sin earlier in this service, if the word stayed right on your lips and didn't go any deeper in your heart. I don't know if you carry a weight of guilt that is crushing you right now. I don't know if you're finding it really easy to deflect to someone else. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your confession of sin looks like or your particular private list of them. But we all have one. We all have our personal private list. And we also have our list as a community of faith. And so for all of us, <laughs> hear these precious words of forgiveness from the prophet Micah as he ends his prophetic words to God's people, as he brings his courtroom drama to a close. These are the last words Micah leaves with God's people. Speaking to God. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of your people? Oh, you do not stay angry forever. You delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. You will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And you will be faithful to Jacob. You will show love to Abraham. Just as you pledged, just as you promised, as an oath and a vow to our ancestors in days long ago. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our forgiving God, 
we come before you knowing intimately the ways that we fail, <laughs> the ways that we fall short, our own particular temptations and sins. We know the ones that we hide in the deep, dark corners of our soul and our lives. And you see them and you know them. Help us to confess well. Help us to be honest with ourselves, with you. Send your spirit so that honesty may lead us closer to you, deeper into a knowledge and a trust and a belief in your forgiveness, in the wideness of your mercy, and deeper in gratitude for the work of Jesus for us and with us in his life, death, and resurrection that has made us your people, people you love, people you walk with, and those you call friend. In the name of Jesus, who is our hope and our forgiveness, we pray. Amen.